Please be seated. Our sermon text this morning is again in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of the book of Galatians. We're looking at those last several verse, verses in chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Again, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. This is God's word. Give ear to it. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. Dear God, we come to you this morning and we ask, O Lord, that you would give us ears to hear your word. And give your servant Wisdom, teach us all, we pray, O Lord, and grow us in grace and knowledge. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, as you've studied the Old Testament, if you've, as you've spent time in the Bible, and you've, as you've sought to understand what the Bible is teaching, you know a little about Old Testament Judaism. And many of you know a great deal about Judaism as it is found today. And so you know that Old Testament Judaism was a religion that was built around distinctions. Differences between the Jews and other nations were very sharply drawn. And these distinctions were important to the people of God. To the Jews, the world consisted of the Jews and everybody else. And this was no particular fault of the Jews. This was the way the Lord God set it up when he established the nation of Israel. When he brought them out of Egypt, he made them a distinct nation. And one purpose of the law, there were many purposes of the law, but one purpose of the law was to make Israel distinct among the nations as he brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. He wanted them to remain separate. He didn't want them to integrate with those various peoples who populated that area, that region in the, in the Mediterranean. And so he established various laws. And some of them were strange. He, he told them that they weren't able to eat certain types of animals. That they were to stay away from certain types of things. He told them that their garments were not to be made of two different types of cloth. And that they weren't supposed to sow different types of grain in the same field. Well, why did he do that? There have been lots of uh, uh, hypotheses as to why the Lord would do this, some, some would say that certain foods were unhealthy and therefore the Lord was protecting them, but that's not the case across the board. And then you see in Acts 10 that all of those restrictions on food are lifted. As God says, take and eat, these are good. One of the reasons that God enacted all of these food laws and all of these uh, laws concerning what they could 
where and how they could plant their fields was to maintain this distinction, this separateness. And I think you all understand that when you sit down at a meal with other people, you are sharing with them in a very intimate way. And God wanted the Israelites to maintain a difference. You see, all these different nationalities, these peoples that populated the land of Canaan were very idolatrous nations. And of chief concern to the Lord God was that His people would not adapt, they would not assimilate, they would not take these idolatrous religions to themselves. One way that God uh, uh, gauged whether a king was a good king or not in Israel and in Judah was whether that king took the time to destroy the altars that were made to idols. And if they didn't do it, they were a bad king. If they were faithful and trying to root out idolatry among Israel, they were a good king. God wanted there to be distinctions, differences among His people. By being obedient to God's law, the Israelites were, being, were giving evidence of their faith. They were demonstrating that they were, had faith in the Lord. But they're also reinforcing their status as being unique and set apart from other nations. They had to look, they had to behave differently. And as we've seen, as we've looked through Galatians now, and coming to the end of the third chapter, we've seen that by the time of the New Testament, Judaism had come to the point of keeping the law in order to earn God's favor. It was no longer the sense of being obedient, of an exercise in faith. It was they wanted to earn salvation. They wanted to earn God's favor. They wanted to earn righteousness, to make themselves righteous by their works. And they continued to keep the law in order to maintain that distinction between themselves and the Gentiles. And so we see in this book that the Judaizers and the churches at Galatia were insisting that the Gentile converts to Christianity keep the law. They insisted that they be circumcised. They insisted that they adhere to these dietary laws. And Paul has been arguing consistently over and over against this, against the Judaizers. And now in our passage, he turns to show the Galatians that rather than there being divisions in the church, rather than there being divisions among brothers and sisters in Christ because they're Jew or Gentile, Paul's showing that there's true unity among each other. There's true unity among Christians because we are all one in Christ. So think on this during this passage, during the sermon. Think on this through the rest of the week. Through faith in Christ, you have become the adopted sons and daughters of God. United in the same family and co-heirs of the eternal inheritance. Through faith in Christ you have become the adopted sons and daughters of God. United in the same family and co-heirs of the eternal promises which are eternal life in Christ. And I'm looking at this passage and I've divided it up in a simple way with two parts. Before faith came, and now that faith has come. These are the divisions that Paul uses in this passage. And that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Before faith came. In these verses, Paul draws a dividing line in history. He draws a line. And he says, before Christ came, before faith came, he says in verse 23. And then he turns to verse 25 and he says, now that faith has come. Now you need to see here. But the object of our faith is what Paul is speaking of. He's not speaking of faith in and of itself. He's speaking of the person in whom 
We have faith because Abraham had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. But that was prior to the time that Jesus had come. It's before Christ came. And now that Christ has come. Those are the things that Paul is talking about here. And Orthodox Christianity has always held that there has been a great continuity between the church in Israel in Old Testament times and the New Testament church. They see a very a continuous line from Jacob, from Abraham, all the way down into present day. We believe that the church didn't just spring up out of nowhere in the book of Acts. That's a totally uh, ripping the church out of its context in that first century. The church came up out of the church of Israel, out of the Old Testament church. And so we want to stress that continuity, the, the, the similarity between the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament. But that being said, we also have to maintain distinctions. We have to maintain differences, and Paul does that here. Paul reminds us of these differences when he writes, before faith came, and now that faith has come. And Jesus made this same distinction. Do you remember when he said those things about John the Baptist? He talked about this in Matthew 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How is this possible? Because Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth. He ushered it in. And so everyone who follows after Jesus is greater than the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. John the Baptist who had the privilege of making straight the path of the Lord. Of paving the way for the Lord Jesus to come. There is a fundamental difference between the time before Jesus came and the time after He came. You see, before Jesus came, Paul says, His people, God's people, were held captive under the law. Now, the Israelites had been set free from slavery in Egypt and turned loose in the promised land, but they were still held captive. They were held captive by the law. And Paul says uh, there in verse 23 that uh, the law imprisoned them until the coming of Jesus. And this is remarkably similar to what he said in verse 22 when he said the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. And verse 23, you see, is really just an expansion or a continuation of that thought. As we saw last week, the law and the sin are intimately connected. The law creates sin. It, 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 it stimulates sin in our hearts. As the Apostle Paul said, he wouldn't have known what it meant to covenant. Covent, covet had it not been for the law, telling him what covetousness was. So the function of the law and the function of sin are essentially the same. Both sin and the law imprison God's people. And you see this function of keeping the Israelites distinct and separate from all of those nations, from uh, the, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the, the Hittites, the function that the law served there was to build a wall between the Israelites and the rest of the people. And that wall, while keeping uh, the heathen out, it also walled the people of God in. While it did protect them from the outside world, it also blocked them in. It kept them imprisoned. But in verse 24, Paul switches metaphors, doesn't he? The law imprisoned Israel... But it also, he says in verse 24, served as a guardian until Christ came. That's a slightly different metaphor here. 
What Paul means by guardian is literally uh, rendered a pedagogue. And we, you can find that in your English dictionaries. It's a pedagogue in, in the first century in a Greek culture was a slave who served as a child's protector. And this slave would walk around with, with a child of a, a boy from a wealthy Greek family, and he would take that child from the time that he was age six up to, to the time that he was mature, whatever that age was, so he'd become a man. And this pedagogue, this slave, would take him everywhere he went. He would walk with him to school. He would sit in a room with other pedagogues while the children were at school, and then he would take him home. He would go over the lessons with this child. He would discipline the child. Now, in some ways, the pedagogue served as, a, uh, as an instructor or a tutor, but that was not the pedagogue's primary function. The primary function of the pedagogue was a disciplinarian. And that's what Paul says about the law. Paul says that it imprisoned, but that it also protected the people until they reached maturity. And so when that child got to the age that he was a man, the pedagogue, the slave, went on in his own way. He found another child to nurture and, and bring up. Well, God, God gave the law to Israel when it was a child. And it served well as Israel's protector and disciplinarian, but God had better things for his people. He had better things than for them to remain enslaved to this law. He waited until they were ready. Well, the law functions similarly in the lives of individual people. It reveals our sins. Before you knew Christ, the law served to show you that you were going against God's perfect will. It reveals our sins to us and it shows us our need for redemption. It brings us to an age of maturity and it drives us, it propels us, it pushes us to Christ. It compels us to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. And for believers, it continues to show us how to walk in loving and humble obedience to our Lord. Now let's turn and look at the time that we are presently in. Now that faith has come. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, Born under the law. When the time was right, when Israel had reached its maturity, when, when the law had done all that it could do for Israel, the fullness of time, God sent His Son. And I think it's safe to say that God used the law to, to accelerate that time. So that the sending of His Son could come quicker. It was all in His plan from all eternity. And yet, as we saw last week, the law was an accelerant. It moved things along, kept things progressing. And this is what Paul means in verse 25 when he says, but now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under that pedagogue. We're no longer held captive to that slave. In Christ, we have reached the age of maturity. Great changes have taken place now that Christ has come. In Christ, you are free from the guardianship of the law. You're not under the law anymore. The law has been written on your heart. It no, no longer stands above you. God promised that He would write the law on the hearts of His people in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And you can see examples of, of this even in our own society, in our own culture. Reaching maturity comes with new freedoms and responsibilities. Children, when they reach a certain age, can drive. When they reach a certain age, they can vote. They can live on their own. They can go off to college. 
These are things that we entrust our children with when they reach a certain age of maturity. You are privileged to do things when you reach maturity that you weren't privileged to do before that time. And being in Christ grants privileges as well. The first privilege Paul mentions here is becoming a son of God. And we see that in verse 26. While Paul doesn't specifically use the word here, he's speaking of adoption. He's talking about being adopted as a son and a daughter of God the Father. And he makes that clear in chapter 4, verse 5. When you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, you are adopted as a child of God. Now you remember way back in verse 7, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul said that everyone who believes in Christ is a child of Abraham. But what does he say in verse 26? He says that everyone who believes in Christ is a child of God. He's taking it up a notch. Yes, you're a child of Abraham. Yes, you're a part of Israel. But more importantly, as Abraham was a son of God, you are sons and daughters of God. Jesus has brought you into his family. Jesus has become your brother. You are so completely joined with Christ that you share all of the riches of his inheritance with him. You're co-heirs. When the father looks at you, he sees only his son because you have become inseparable with Jesus Christ. You have been legally adopted into God's family. And you have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith sa says that those who have been adopted are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Now that's a mouthful. Study it. Go home. Pull out your confession of faith. Study that section on adoption. All of these benefits that you receive as children of the living God, they are yours in Christ. They're yours. This should cause you to have praise on your lips as you think about your status before God, as you think about this newfound identity that you have that you never had before you knew Christ. You see, an adopted child has the same legal rights and privileges as a natural-born son or daughter. Through faith in Christ, you have become co-heirs with Christ. But not only are you co-heirs with Christ, you are also co-heirs with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You share these riches with one another. You're not isolated from each other. You're not walking through this world alone. You're not the sole recipient of justification or sanctification or adoption or glorification. You're not the, you're not the only one who receives these glorious benefits by being in Christ. You have brothers and sisters to share this with. And more importantly, or or, 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 or even greater than this, you're also co-heirs with, with everyone who has believed in Christ, past, present, and future. Not just those of us who sit here this morning. The body of Christ, co-heirs with Christ, is much greater than we can ever imagine. 
Verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. Just as circumcision was the sign of the old. And just like circumcision, baptism can precede faith in the case of infant baptism. Or it can come after faith as in the case of believer's baptism. And it needs to be made clear that Paul is not saying that the sacrament of baptism is itself what saves an individual. He's not saying that. If you were to ask Paul at what point he was was saved, he would say on the road to Damascus. At what point were you justified? On the road to Damascus. When was he baptized? Several days later. Paul is not here saying that baptism saves. But he is saying that it's a sign and a seal. Being under in the Spirit and in Christ. To say that baptism saves is precisely what Paul has been arguing about throughout this letter. Because they've been saying that circumcision is necessary for salvation. And so Paul would never argue such a thing. Baptism signifies the salvation that comes by grace through faith. The sign and the seal of our adoption in Christ is baptism. But it is not through baptism that we are adopted. Being adopted means that you have, you have put on Christ. And Paul uses the same verb in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, where he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man, who's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You put on Christ. You wear Christ like a robe. You've been clothed in Christ. You're connected to him in every way. He covers you. His obedience has become our obedience. His suffering and death is your suffering and death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His glorification is your glorification. We all share in this because we're co-heirs with Christ. We have become His brothers and sisters. And He loves us with true brotherly love. Now earlier we talked about the fact that Judaism was a religion of distinction and separateness. The Israelites were to keep themselves separate from all the other nations. And though God has made provisions for those outside of Israel to become a part of Israel, there were still distinctions. Gentiles could become proselytes. They could be circumcised. But they could never be a Jew. The temple in Jerusalem made these distinctions more concrete. If you look at the way it was structured, if you look at the way it was built, you can see the distinctions that were made between people and races. There are various courts and chambers on the temple grounds for people to worship. The court of the Gentiles is well known because that is where the vendors and the money changers set up shop. That is where Jesus took out the whip and drove them out. That is where he said, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, the Gentile court was well outside the Holy of Holies. It was outside even those inner courts of the temple. And Gentiles could be put to death for entering into the inner courts. Well, just inside the eastern uh, eastern gate of the inner court was the court of women. And in addition to Israelite women, Jewish males and priests could, could go in there, but no other. And then there was another wall that separated the court of women from the court of the Israelites. And that's where the men, Jewish men, only Jewish men could go. The priests were allowed there as well. And of course only the priests were allowed to go in the temple proper 
where the, the sanctuary was. Well, Paul says in verse 28 that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And there is not male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of these distinctions that were established in Judaism are blown away by what Paul is saying. What Jesus did, the perfect work of Christ. What did he do? He ripped the veil when he died. He opened up the Holy of Holies so that you and I and everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus have access to God's throne. You don't need me to go before the Lord in prayer. You don't need me to worship God. You have access by the blood of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been granted access into the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus has done for you. So when Paul says this in verse 28, what he means is that the barriers between races and economic levels and sexes have been demolished by Christ. Now this verse has been misused over and over and over. And I'm sure that some of you are, have read uh, uh, articles or, or commentaries that have talked about how this verse just demolishes everything. Well, well, Paul is not talking here about making a raceless, sexless, uh, androgynous group of people. He doesn't take distinctions away. That's not what he's talking about. You see, the categories that Paul are talking about here are categories you have no control over. You can't control where you were born in the world. You have no control over whether you were born in Africa or America or in Italy. You have no control over your ethnicity or your, or your nationality. You've got no control over whether you were born in, as a slave or as a free person. And you have no control over whether you were born as a male or a female. These are all distinctions that are up to God, that he has made. Paul is not abolishing these distinctions. These, this should not be used for people to exercise sin. And this verse is often used in that way. It's often used to support a homosexual agenda. There's no male or female, so we shouldn't worry about it. And that is absolutely wrong. Paul will address sexual immorality in chapter 5. Those distinctions are not lifted by this verse. But in terms of your ability to worship God, all of these distinctions and barriers have been removed. They've been taken down. Now that doesn't mean that you cease to be male and female. It doesn't mean that you stop being Asian or black or white. It doesn't mean that you, a slave stops being a slave when they come to Christ. Read the book of Philemon. You still may be a slave uh, in Christianity, even if you've come to Christ. And it does not mean that there are not different roles for men and women in the household and in the church. God has set up structure and organization. But it doesn't mean that men are more, are more valuable than women, or vice versa, because of those roles that God has, has set up. But it does mean that you are all one in Christ. It does mean that there, are, uh, there is an equality there. You have unique characteristics and gifts. You are different, but you're all equals in terms of your standing before God. He doesn't look upon a man as better than a woman. He doesn't look upon a white person as better than a black person. He doesn't make those distinctions. There will be no segregation in heaven. And so I put the question to you. 
As Paul has removed some of these barriers, how do you, how do I, how do we continue to put them up? How do we build partitions between each other? Do we tend to congregate with people of, of like race or like gender or like economic status? God does not show favorites, as, the God, as God's word says, and neither should his people. God is not a respecter of persons. He cares that people trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be our concern as well. If we are brothers and sisters in the Lord, we should not be throwing up barriers between one another. Well, Paul ends chapter 3 the same way he began it. He talks about Abraham. If you belong to Christ, then you are sons and daughters of Abraham. You are Israel. The church and Israel are one. And there's great continuity. And yet many of the distinctions of the Old Testament are gone. There are distinctions, but many are gone. And it makes no difference what race you are, what your economic status is, whether you're male or female. You are all heirs to the promises that God made to Abraham. And the greatest promise that God ever made was salvation in Christ Jesus. The greatest promise that, Abraham, that God made to Abraham was that he would send an offspring. And that offspring is Jesus Christ. And all the other promises, the riches of inheritance that God made to Abraham, that he would make him the father of many nations, that he would give him a land where he could be, all of those promises of inheritance... All the benefits that you receive as being believers in Christ Jesus, those come as a result of being the son of Abraham and the son of God. But you have to believe in the Lord Jesus in order to become an heir. You are not included in Abraham's last will and testament unless you have repented of your sins and unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no hope. You'll be left out of the inheritance if you do not embrace Jesus. Your inheritance will be the place of eternal torment where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus. But there is hope. There is hope. And that hope is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners like you and me. And all you are called on to do is to repent of your sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so those of you who do not know Him, I call on you to repent and to believe. And you will be made a co-heir with Christ and with all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You will receive that eternal inheritance that God has promised to the children of Abraham. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have made us that you have adopted us as sons and daughters that we are brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ we thank you dear Lord that you poured out your grace upon your people and that you granted to us the gift of faith so that we might believe we pray this in Jesus name Amen our hymn of response this morning is hymn number 642 be Thou My Vision. Please stand as we sing hymn number 642.